0: Have you seen the movie Tenant, where there's this wild fight in an airport secure repository? It's like an armored bunker warehouse in an airport where very expensive things are placed.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay. I was I was thinking more Die Hard too. in the airport was uh, my visual that you had going. I like it though.
0: That image came to mind reading this article about the Canadian police investigating a theft of million of gold cargo stolen from the Toronto airport. This is obviously a huge amount of money, though I think physically that's not that much gold. I think that's maybe a couple suitcases of gold. So relatively dense amount of value, but it disappeared at the airport. And I feel like this is kind of a good example of how there is a drawback to physical stores of wealth. They can be physically stolen. And even in a high security environment, which is very different than the way that normal retail people would store gold in their own self custody, these things can be stolen. Whereas with Bitcoin, you can self custody it and potentially achieve a higher level of security than this gold that was under guard in an airport.
1: Yeah, you talk about a high transaction cost too. I mean, to move that value around, they're loading it into crates, which probably had to get shipped on truck to the airport. I'm betting when you have a special package that comes on shipping truck that gets loaded on an airplane, that's probably not cheap freight. Then they get that on the plane, it lands at the airport, and then you kind of get the impression maybe there was an insider or something like that from the article because they're like, yeah we don't really know what happened. I mean, we don't think it happened in this area, but we're just not sure that. How do you even define that as a transaction cost? Right. I think I see a lot of criticism around Bitcoin for how costly it is to do an on-chain transaction. Of course, these people usually conveniently forget about Lightning. Uh, But I, I saw an anecdotal story shared on Reddit over the week that $10 million in Bitcoin was sent in one single transaction that morning, and it cost the sender $5 in transaction fees.
0: And it cleared in 10 minutes, whereas it would have taken probably at least a day or several days to move this gold and confirm that it had reached its destination. And I think what's interesting is if you're doing a, big gold physical clearance transaction, you also probably, obviously you need to buy security, but you may also need to buy insurance on that transaction. And for $5, Bitcoin gives you all of that and more, and it takes 10 minutes. So that's pretty remarkable.
1: Yeah. I'll pay that $5. I'm okay with that.
0: This is the Bitcoin dad pod recorded on Friday, April 28th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin dad. And I'm here as always remotely with, Hey, it's me. It's Chris. (laughs) Welcome back everybody. This week, we're going to advise a security update to LND, a popular Lightning node implementation. We read a report from Congress about the role Of cryptocurrency in the failure of three U.S. banks. But other regulators are saying crypto had no role in these failures. So which is it? That's an interesting conversation, perhaps. In economics and banking, it appears that First Republic, another regional bank in the U.S., is insolvent, but is still limping on. Why is that? It could be that the FDIC is actually broke after nationalizing Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and Silvergate. Our favorite BitMEX co-founder, Arthur Hayes is back with a Mammoth blog post that, provides his framework for understanding what a dollarized world is and how it is currently evolving into a new monetary standard. Lynn Alden is also back after a hiatus with an article about the U.S. debt ceiling, which is going to be an issue this summer or late spring. So that's quite pressing for financial markets and investors and the financial system. So it sort of intersects on Bitcoin a little. It kind of shows you the dark alternative. In Bitcoin education, we are going to discuss Utrexo, Utrexo, Utrexo. It's hard to say.
1: <laughs> yeah. I I, I say Utrexo, but I, I'm horrible at these things.
0: I like Utrexo. I think you nailed it, which is a way to run a Bitcoin node with different characteristics. It's a bit different. It's a new type of Bitcoin node. And I wasn't excited about it, but now I am. I think it's a really neat idea, though there are echoes of issues with Ethereum here, just to be spicy. And then in feedback. We have some boosts, and that's our show.
1: I'm looking forward to this. It's a nice arrangement of actually really impactful stories. This is, uh, it sounds cliche, but for the banking system, we are living right smack dab in the middle. Of a period of time that people will look back at and they'll have a name for it. Whatever is going on right now that's playing out that we're going to talk about today, like that era of time is going to have a name. It will be known
0: for whatever they decide. You need to suggest one and that can be our show title.
1: I know. I know. I know. I was trying to think like the everything bubble or, you know, the... uh, the banking collapse. I don't know. We don't really know where it's going yet. Right. But
0: the bubble is so hollow. It Mm -hmm. only affects people at the top of society. So there has to be a sense of how it's kind of a hollow, an illusion of plenty. It's like a hollow bubble, sort of.
1: It's a fiat bubble. We'll get there because uh, there is some important security news, actually, for Lightning Daemon users like myself.
0: Were you able to identify the specific security concern or are we inferring that from Twitter posts by Calais, Alex Bosworth and the Lightning Twitter account itself?
1: Yeah, that so in so much that it sounds like it's one of those the disclosure date hasn't arrived yet, but they're getting the patch out now to give people a chance to update before the bug becomes
0: widely known and then instantly exploited. And this is a standard security practice, because when a security bug is found, especially a severe one, If all goes well, the individual who found it contacts the project and says, hey, you've got a security issue here. You need to solve it right now. Then they reach out, they confirm the bug, they solve it, and then they create a patch. And then they tell everybody, there's a security patch. Please apply this. And hopefully everyone applies it before hackers discover the bug and start stealing funds or attacking the software. That's the correct approach, right?
1: Yeah. And you want to kind of give everybody a chance to have at least a day or two if you can. So LND 0.16.1 beta came out on Monday, April 24th, 2023. That's been a few days ago. So probably going to be any day, maybe already as we record, who knows when this comes out, it's going to be any day that the disclosure will come out, if this is true. And so you're kind of in the window right now as we record this is the moment of opportunity to upgrade before that becomes public. There is another change in there, it's overall the project calls it a minor release, but there is a change to the default CLTV delay time, uh, which it's not huge but just be aware, there is some other changes in there besides just the fix. The fix that is technically not on the release notes yet, I'll point out. The project hasn't formally announced there's a problem.
0: One thing I love about the release notes is they devote a large amount of time to how you verify the release to confirm that it's not a compromised package that's being sort of slipped in as people are scrambling to update. And they also anchor some data from the release into the Bitcoin blockchain using open timestamps, which is a really neat way to save hashes into the Bitcoin blockchain that can be used to verify that files existed in a certain state. Right. At the point that they were put into the blockchain.
1: Even if their GitHub account was compromised and somebody fiddled with the uh,
0: markdown on there and put something bogus in there, you could always just check the blockchain. That's pretty cool. I think we both saw some of Gary Gensler's testimony before the, is it Senate Financial Regulatory Committee? There was a couple.
1: So it could have been that one. There's also like the Banking Oversight Committee as well. That's like different than the one that oversights the Treasury. (laughs) So because there has been more Senate testimonies with Gary Gensler than I can remember ever since Gary Gensler has been chairman of the SEC. He's been in several just in the last few months. So they're all running together.
0: And I believe that there have been multiple witnesses in these testimonies that have either said directly or implied strongly that the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and Silvergate Bank was entirely due or strongly. Yeah due to cryptocurrency somehow.
1: I think it was even Gary himself in one of his closing remarks in one of the most recent testimonies where he said that, uh, you know, crypto was likely responsible for the collapse of one of these banks. And um, everybody's like, what evidence do you have to suggest that? I mean, it was a really kind of strong statement from somebody who would seemingly be in a position to know.
0: Right. And I think our position has been, well, describe the transmission mechanism and there really wasn't one. I think the strongest smoking gun, potentially, or false flag, however you, or uh, red herring, however you define it, is the fact that Silvergate Bank had a large number of crypto clients who were using the Silvergate Exchange Network. And those clients were drawing down their balances, whether because of crypto losses or due to just being a startup that wasn't getting new funding and has a model of burning through money. And so they were drawing down those balances, which then caused Silvergate to start selling. Treasury securities that were underwater. They were below the par price, below the price they purchased them at, due to the Fed's recent and very fast increases in interest rates.
1: Right. Their safe bet wasn't safe. And that truly was the crux of the issue. And, uh, you know, the Fed knew what their balance was and how much they might be dependent on that and knew how underwater they were. And that was their insight. That was why they probably took action. And that was the crux
0: of the actual problem. Just to summarize, the problem actually was that Silvergate Bank, these three banks, they used U.S. Treasury securities as a way to save money, to protect their collateral, their capital. And those securities, which are supposed to be the safest, most stable, most liquid asset in the world, suddenly lost a large amount of value in sort of a surprising way, right? So it's actually a problem with the dollar and treasuries, not a problem with crypto. Even though they then said, well, crypto customers are very dangerous because they can withdraw funds very quickly. You gave me an article that says, no, this is not the case. Yeah, and this
1: is backed by uh, a congressional research paper that came out on April 25th. And this research paper concludes that uh, crypto really didn't play a role other than the market was just spooked about the decline in crypto. And so there was probably more people that were also like looking to exchange their stable coins for USD. But they stated unequivocally in there that crypto losses did not cause the collapse of any of these banks. The report states the banks did business with high crypto failures like FTX, but they had limited exposure. They specifically state FTX in here and demonstrate that these banks actually had managed their risk pretty well in relation to FTX, surprisingly.
0: FTX deposits were only 0.1% of signature deposits. So effectively, that rounds to zero. They were essentially 0% exposed.
1: Exactly. To spin that as the cause of these banks collapse is just to take attention away from the fact that the treasuries didn't deliver on the return that they expected because the interest rates were raised at a pace that no bank forecasted because it's never been seen before. So, or maybe not at least since the 80s. I find this report to be fascinating because it's counter to what Gary's testimony was just a couple of weeks ago.
0: And it's a great example of how there are institutions like the Congressional Research Service that creates non- partisan, factual research about important events like these bank failures. And now it's on to us to read that dry analytical analysis and form an opinion. We can't rely on our representatives in government to correctly digest this information? Because it seems that this very reasonable analysis did not show up in any of these hearings.
1: And how are they supposed to course correct if they're not going off of the right causational information? You know, if they're blaming crypto, I think they're missing another critical factor that these reports are going to have a hard time quantifying. And that is what really got Silicon Valley Bank, what really got them was that all of their clients were hyper interconnected and they were on slacks with each other. And they begun communicating and speculating about the health of the bank a month or two before the bank collapsed. So they were all hyper connected on this topic already. Text messages, slacks, DMs on Twitter, I've heard multiple different stories of this. And when the bank started to have issue, they all jumped on their DMs and started warning each other. And then the big VC firms, and I've heard several VC firms that have actually just admitted this in their podcast, call up their clients, anybody that they have funded and tell them or, you know, sent them a DM to pull out immediately. And it was the rapid spread of concern and information that really drove to the quick drawdown in these banks. And there's nothing in these reports that addresses that. You know, they try to kind of blame crypto. They call it the first Twitter-driven crash or whatever, but all of that misses the mark. The real mark is people have instant communications available to them on multiple platforms that they prefer to use, that they're already networked on, and they'll go to them immediately to warn each other. And there's nothing the banking system can do about that.
0: Another bank that has been limping along since these three failures is called First Republic. And so... Statements that the U.S. banking crisis is contained and we don't need to worry about it, they're completely false because First Republic has provided disclosures that demonstrates that it is insolvent. It has experienced the same monetary backdrop as Silvergate Signature and Silicon Valley Bank essentially the their treasury portfolio has taken a market to market hit due to fed policy and they've also experienced major outflows and they would have gone insolvent and needed to be nationalized by the fdic except there was an organized sort of bailout from larger banks putting deposits back into first republic so essentially Funds from customers flowed out of First Republic because it's a regional bank and it could be allowed to fail. They went into a GSIB, a globally systemic and important bank like Citigroup, and then they flowed back from Citigroup into First Republic because clearly regulators or politicians talked to the GSIBs and said, hey, can you guys bail out First Republic because we don't want to do it. And one of the reasons that First Republic might not have been nationalized is because the FDIC has spent their insurance money on three bank failures and they cannot actually float the cost to nationalize another bank. So potentially FDIC insurance is already bankrupt. They're
1: tapped out. That was the concern that was raised pretty quickly when we saw three banks fold. And so it it really sounds like Jamie Dimon is working in hand with Janet Yellen and others at the Treasury to essentially orchestrate a private bailout system. And First Republic on Sunday announced an ongoing deal with JP Morgan that they'll be able to get access to fast cash if needed. And it seems to be like maybe they have like a 70 billion dollar credit line now with JP Morgan. And of course, you've got Jamie Dimon over there also helping coordinate in case another bank starts to collapse. But so the thing that I, I take from this is if Silicon Valley Bank was the 16th largest bank and first republic is somewhere between the 11th and the 13th largest bank it seems like we're slowly working our way up the food chain of bigger and bigger banks and in order to stop that we're now taking the resources of the biggest banks and infusing that into smaller banks but if the collapse continues and the banks the
0: big banks continue to
1: infuse cash then aren't we just creating an even bigger house of cards that could all just
0: go out all at once I think that contagion is endemic to this system and the situation that's happening at First Republic is happening very likely at every bank in America because banks borrow and lend. So right now, banks need to borrow to meet short-term liquidity requirements, such as people withdrawing funds from the bank. And so as more people withdraw funds, they need to borrow more in the short term in order to honor those withdrawals. And if they fail to honor a withdrawal, even once, everyone loses their mind and the bank goes insolvent because banks exist because of this collective delusion that they're solvent. So right now for First Republic, if they need to borrow in the short term, and every bank needs to do this, they get to pay 4.85% at the Fed's discount window, 4.57% at the BTFP facility, or get federal housing loan assistance for 4.8%. But the problem is their treasury portfolio was purchased in the free money era. They issued loans in the free money era, which was only two years ago. Right. Yeah. It's still in the system, right? I mean, it's still the system is still shaped by this massive event. So all of their assets are yielding 1.77% to 2.5%, but they have to borrow at nearly 5%. So they're 2.5% in the hole, And maybe that doesn't sound like a big deal, but in terms of borrowing, this is insolvent, completely and utterly insolvent. And how are other banks any different than this? They're all the
1: same. This is one of the top banks. This is the top 15 of banks.
0: So this system can only exist if there are government-guaranteed bailouts, and there is not enough money in the world currently to pay out all of these liabilities, at least in the short term. And that means that there are implicit guarantees to print money, to bail out our banking system, and they are necessary today. So I think that this does speak to inflation and financial risk in the future, medium to long term, definitely, but maybe even in the short term, who knows? Is this the breakage we were waiting for? It just seems like the fragility of legacy finance ratchets up every day, and it's been happening since 2008. And so everyone who's been predicting the catastrophic end has been completely wrong because they failed to appreciate how complacent most people are and also to what <laughs> yes. extreme lengths institutions will go to.
1: I was just thinking in terms of the, the you know, j Powell's current uh, rate hike policy, you know, the, everybody speculated the rate hikes will continue until something breaks and it feels like things are breaking in a big way, like in a really big way, potentially. So I wonder if the rate hikes begin to level off now. It's just only speculation on my part, but I, I wanted to just bring a little bit of a Bitcoin flavor to the end of this. Bitcoin has performed. I'm looking at the chart right now. Bitcoin has responded positively to every one of these bank crashes. It has mechanically moved up every time one of these things goes down. The first time it happened, I thought, oh, that's an interesting little correlation. You know, everybody spooked a little bit. The second time it happened, I thought, huh, okay, but this is like the fourth time. And now we're kissing $30,000 again after sliding. Bitcoin was in a price slide down to 27,000 since our last episode. And then this First Republic news came, and now we're kissing 30,000 again. I don't know what it means exactly, other than perhaps... As we watch these banks struggle, people begin to look for something outside, some refuge outside the system, and Bitcoin seems to be the most reasonable choice.
0: And speaking of the system, the international dollar system, Arthur Hayes has a lovely new blog post. I'm sorry, Arthur, I was critical after you obviously pumped your bag on your last post Maelstrom, but I guess you listen to the podcast and you've repented with another beautiful and memey global macro slash investment themed blog post. Thank you so much. It was an enjoyable read. Did you chat GPT summary it?
1: I thought about it, but that's basically what I, I rely on you for for the Arthur Hayes articles. You're kind of my you're my dad GPT on these ones. <laughs>
0: (laughs) I'm worried that ChatGPT would do a better job. Like, I don't know how I think about myself when ChatGPT starts doing better than me at this.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's going to be concerning for all of us.
0: (laughs) Maybe I'll still be necessary to read ChatGPT's analysis and be like, oh, I think it missed a point.
1: Perhaps. Or what you do is you just spin up another chat GPT agent, but you tell it to work under the context of being critical of the former agent and have it review the things it missed and then produce a results. And then you feed that to the final agent, which is designed to present it in a more conversational spoken out loud tone. And then presents the information through um, a brand new voice or a text to voice uh, project that the Home Assistant project is working on. It's totally self-hosted and open source. It's all
0: doable now. It just sounds like we're only necessary to feed the computers that ChatGPT lives on now.
1: Yeah, we're like the meat clipboard of the copy and paste situation
0: (laughs) going on there. So this is the matrix, except we're not plugged into VATs. We know what we're doing.
1: The financial system is what we're plugged into. The financial system is the matrix, and it is our energy and soul that goes into the dollars that we spend, which is why inflation is such a bastard.
0: Now, why does Arthur call this post, I will not be exit liquidity? It is because essentially he views holding the US dollar and dollar denominated assets long-term is as being exit liquidity. Exit liquidity is a term... I think from Legacy Finance, but we use it in crypto to talk about bag holders. That if you have an illiquid altcoin, you can make two transactions. The first transaction is one dollar, the second transaction is a million dollars a coin, and you'd made them both to yourself. You've created an artificial market cap. Now you just need people to believe that there's a real market here, not just someone selling to themselves. And then you can sell them this coin for a million dollars and make huge amounts of money. And those people become the exit liquidity as that person scams out of that token. And Why does Arthur believe that is the U.S. dollar or the future of the U.S. dollar? Well, there are a couple of reasons. There have been some events in recent news about foreign trade moving away from dollar settlement. Arthur references liquid natural gas contracts between France and China that are being invoiced in Chinese yuan. There, of course, is this conversation in Brazil between uh, their president, Lula, and Xi Jinping, I believe, about trading directly, not using dollars. And the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, Singapore, have been exploring a new currency for use between them that is not dollar-based. So there's a lot of talk about de-dollarization. Now, the dollar has been a benefit to U.S. elites and U.S. global dominance because it's allowed the U.S. to effectively print oil, but it creates issues in the domestic U.S. economy. Having this reserve dollar means that U.S. labor is always a bit more expensive than labor overseas. And since the goods that require large amounts of labor inputs, like resources, you know, cutting down trees or or digging uh, minerals out of the earth, they require a large amount of labor. These industries have all moved overseas. And some people are happy about this because it creates a cleaner domestic environment. But it means that the U.S. has been exporting jobs overseas ever since the 1970s, ever since this global euro dollar system that started after 1972. And as a result, the poor in America have gotten poorer, and relatively, the rich have gotten relatively richer. And this has centralized income, political power, and you know, who knows, maybe even culture in the United States. And this is very painful because, definitionally, upper income, the rich are a very small group relative to literally everybody else. And so this is a political problem, and it begs the question, why does the U.S. want the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency? It's actually kind of a big problem problem for people who work in the U.S. economy or the vast majority of these people. So the answer to why the U.S. still wants a global dollar is because moving away from a global dollar would be a massive shift in global political economy and it would mean that the U.S. government establishment would have to massively change because currently the U.S. has a trillion dollar yearly deficit and the adjusted debt to GDP of the United States Is currently 266%. That said, that number includes off balance entitlement spending. I don't like the term entitlement. It makes it sound like Social Security and Medicare is like, you know, something people don't deserve. It's, you know, it's it's kind of charged, that term. But when debt to GDP is calculated in the United States, entitlement spending is never included in that calculation because there's this argument that, oh, Americans owe that money to themselves. So it doesn't matter. But actually, Social Security and Medicare, while they're paid out in money, that money is used to buy real goods and services. So you could say that you could actually just represent those obligations in terms of real goods and services. And so I I think that you can include that into debt to GDP because those goods and services will likely need to be imported in the future. So at an adjusted debt-to-GDP of 266%, the U.S. is completely insolvent. The interest expense on such a large amount of debt relative to income will never be paid back. There's never been a country in the world that paid back their government debt in real terms once it exploded to such a large extent, and that means that there is only the option to eventually inflate this debt via money printing. Now, why is that actually a threat to the dollar system? Well, the answer is that the way that a dollar reserve currency works means that savings actually happens in dollars. Because the US needs to export dollars to a globalized euro-dollar world, foreigners who sell goods to the United States end up with dollars in their hands after they've given the US goods. What do they do with these dollars? Well, if they then use these dollars to buy more goods and services in their domestic economy, that's great. It raises the standard of living for people in those economies. And let's use China and Japan as as the prime examples of this trend, because these economies have chosen not to sort of spend their trade surpluses with the US. Rather, they invest them in American assets. And the reason they invest the these trade surpluses into American financial markets and American government debt is because this advantages their exchange rate to do more trade with the dollar. And the cost of this financial trade model for Japan and China is born by their workers. And their workers don't seem to have the awareness or the political power to question this arrangement. And so China and Japan have relatively lower standards of living, though ironically higher life expectancy than the United States. And they have massive dollar wealth that is invested into U.S. financial markets. But if the U.S. is trending towards a inflationary government default, investments In US dollar financial markets are risky. You're potentially going to lose your value because the US is structurally geared towards an inflationary event at some point in the future. And when you combine that with the lack of property rights for, savings in U.S. dollars that have to be sort of custodied by financial institutions that are directly or indirectly regulated by U.S. financial regulators as a foreign government or even foreign corporation. If your government runs afoul of the U.S. like Russia did justifiably, then your funds get seized. So there's actually inflation risk in saving in U.S. financial assets. There's ownership risk, property rights risk because of U.S. political instability. We literally Literally do not know what U.S. policy is going to be in five years, let alone 10 years. Who knows? The future is up for grabs here. And so what we see is emerging markets and China buying more gold. When they stopped buying treasuries on the margin in 2011, saving in these other economies shifted into gold. And that's a trend that is increasing. It protects Overseas savers from American political risk. Potentially, it protects them from seizure risk, depending on where this gold is stored. If we're talking about foreign central banks, they store it in their own vaults, so they're perfectly safe. And the Bitcoin angle is we just saw from news this week that when you try to transact and move around gold, even with security guards and secure facilities and flying it around on planes, it can be stolen. Bitcoin does all of this better and is more provably hard as a money than gold. And it seems that the rest of the world is aware that gold is a potential way to save other than, as opposed to US dollars. And Bitcoin is way better than gold in almost every respect. So do the math.
1: Yeah, it might not be something they figure out in the next couple of years, but it's sort of an inevitability. And as a Bitcoiner, I find it so bizarre that nobody knows the rough supply of gold. Like, I think that's so scary and dangerous. And I, you know, gold is doing pretty well right now. Um, it's just below, as we record, like literally just below $2,000, uh, $1,999 are fluctuating there. But it's strange because you just pointed out a lot of central banks are stacking gold right now um it's It's a pretty impressive amount in terms of the at the rate that they traditionally accumulate a currency they're They're moving pretty quick, but Bitcoin has been like rocking with all these banking failures and gold gold is at the same price it was like a month or two ago. And a month or two before that, um, yeah, it's up now from where it was at the beginning of March, but it's below where it was even a month ago or two. Like, it's it's, it's something's going on there with the price. It feels like somebody is manipulating the price, probably with paper gold. And so it's not rallying right now. I don't know if that's what the strategy is there, but it doesn't seem like a very fair market. And when you overlay in a percentage way uh, the price of gold and the price of Bitcoin, gold almost looks like a stable coin. <laughs>
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And the issue with gold is that because self-custody is difficult, because... A bar of gold could easily be stolen from you. And if you have a bar of gold in your house, you're probably going to be worried about someone breaking in. It can be very stressful. No one self-custodies their gold, and it's expensive and dangerous to do so. And when you do, it gets robbed at the airport. So all gold in the world is held by regulated custodians. Well, guess what? That means you don't own gold. You have a claim on gold held by a third party, and that third party must obey their financial regulator. And so if the price of gold is ripping, and I were working at a central bank or a government treasury, I would say, gosh, this could be a sign that the market is really concerned about our currency. We'd better suppress this price signal so as not to cause a panic. Yeah. You know, and that's an option to them. That's not really an option with Bitcoin. I mean, obviously there can be manipulation in price, but all you have to do with Bitcoin is take self-custody. And as long as you don't have to sell in these moments of panic and volatility, you will discover the true price of Bitcoin one day soon. Whereas with gold, we may never know what the true price is because there are a lot of parties that both own gold and control the supply of other people's gold. And that means there'll never be a true price visible, I think. Thank you. The cat
1: uh, after reading this Arthur Hayes piece, I have a question for you. Are you a little more on the world is de dollarizing train than, say, the previous few weeks? Because it kind of sounds like Arthur's entire positioning, long term bet, is that the world is in fact de dollarizing. And it sounds like if you buy into that, it sort of affects the entire way you invest or the entire way you kind of view the long term future. And I'm wondering if he's
0: made a case that you find compelling. I think he does. But the key word is long term. This takes time to happen and there are going to be many reversals And you may read this article and feel very convinced, but over the next five years, you'll forget it because the dollar will still be front and foremost everywhere. And all of this news about de-dollarization will die down until the next round of problems. And then people will talk about it again. So this is a trend that happens over time, which means it's hard to invest in. It's hard to make money off of this. This is about long-term planning and positioning yourself so that you have options. In a future where the U.S. government has serious funding problems, you don't become their exit liquidity. You hold things other than dollar denominated assets that will protect you from this one situation. I mean, there are other financial risks out there, like recession, like potential future conflict. Solar flares. Solar flares, <laughs> Who knows, right? Yeah, solar flares might be the thing that get us.
1: So maybe uh, the gold bugs will have their day. Um, I, I find this, what I find fascinating, is I'm not surprised at all about Arthur Hayes talking about de-dollarization or you to talk about de-dollarization. That doesn't surprise me at all. What I find surprising is a lot more of the common day-to-day finance people, the traditional finance folks that are like mainstream opinion piece writers and television commentators. They're now talking about de-dollarization. I can't remember that ever being a topic in my entire life. And now I hear it a few times a week, of course, because these banks are going down. But I think everybody's a little spooked. It's a, it was a topic that Jay, that was brought up with J-Pow uh, in his Senate hearings several times about de-dollarization and, you know, who, what would be the alternative and, you know, that whole conversation that we just kind of hear on loop right now. But it's the fact that it's even a conversation, de-dollarization. I mean, Dad, I'd argue a decade ago or less most Americans didn't even know that the dollar was the
0: reserve currency. And now it's common conversation to have it the topic be de-dollarization. In 2008, people still thought the dollar was backed by gold. I kid you not.
1: Many people still believe that today. Yeah. I, no, I think people think that now. Yeah, they do. Yes, I have. I can tell you for sure, I have talked to people that think it is backed by gold today. When I tell those people how it's backed, they do not believe me. They think I'm a crazy conspiracy person making it all up. No, I've heard that. No, that's not how it works. No,
0: I think it's too long for an episode title, but I want to call this. We are not crazy conspiracy people making this all up. (laughs)
1: That's really how the system works. Fascinating. You know, if you look at the reserve currencies of the past, it's not like they lose their reserve status over a four year cycle, one presidential cycle or something. That's not how it's like it's 80 years, 90 years. It's like this long slope of 90 percent of trade, 80 percent of trade, then 60 percent of trade. And then all of a sudden it starts dropping off pretty quick after that point. And it's it's a long process.
0: And the reason we care about this is because we think we're in the tail end of that 60-year period. You know, that's our sense, that we are at the end of this and the new system, Bitcoin, has appeared. And even in its sort of nascent experimental state it's really useful and really cool so check it out you know that's sort of i feel like that's the core of our podcast maybe
1: it makes sense there's enough innovation and enough utility brought to this thing that it makes sense to have some exposure to it. What that exposure is, is each person's individual calculus. But in my world and my view, after everything we've talked about in this show, it seems silly not to have some exposure. Like that's a risk not to have some, even if it's a couple of hundred bucks, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, I understand not being able to and can't, but, uh, Willfully not and being aware of everything that's shifting—that just—that doesn't make any sense to
0: me. And this is a really important transitional technology. And so, just listening to podcasts and reading articles about it, and if you can get into the technical literature and run the software, I think that's a really enriching experience. Because when do you have the opportunity to reach out and touch the flame of change that is rewriting the future? You know, you couldn't do that when you know, the technology was like rockets going to the moon. Not every person could participate in that or even become an important part of that development. But the field is completely open today. You can become an important part of this future. You can experience it yourself. And it's going to be transformative, we believe.
1: Yeah, the internet is the closest thing I can think of in my lifetime, but it wasn't available to everyone. The internet was, especially where I live, slow and limited and um, took years before we we really had the proliferation of Wi-Fi and LTE and all these connections everywhere. Um, and now the internet is, it's not available to everybody, but it is av- the availability of TCP IP is near ubiquitous at this point. It's really impressive. That's the fundamental thing you need to participate in the Bitcoin network is you just need access to a TCP IP network. And there's so many ways we have that now. It's incredible, right? Like, he didn't have a chance to build an Amazon back in the early days of the internet because only rich like Jeff Bezos had fast connections. But now everybody has a high-speed connection, uh, nearly.
0: The field is open. But one thing that is not open is the U.S. Treasury's ability to issue more debt. The U.S. has a weird political convention called the Debt Ceiling This does not have to do with spending. Every U.S. politician who says they won't vote for raising the debt ceiling because they're concerned about financial prudence on the part of the government, is completely full of crap because the debt ceiling is just a rule that says the Treasury can't issue more debt past this limit. It's a way for Congress to control the U.S. Treasury, which is part of the executive branch. If you're actually concerned about government spending, then you need to pass budgets and laws that change government spending, that cut the armed forces, that cut entitlements, whatever, not have a fight over the debt ceiling. So when U.S. politicians fight about the debt ceiling, it's a political game. It has nothing to do with actual spending policy. It's just a rule about can the Treasury issue the next round of debt? And since we're at a point in this debt spiral where the next round of debt is literally paying for the previous round of debt, if they do not raise the debt ceiling, they will cause a default of U.S. government debt that will end the world, effectively, in my opinion. So it's not (laughs) going to happen, but it could Um, end the world.
1: So there are very existential threats, right? Because it essentially crashes the credit quality of the U.S. government. And so much of what we do is the full faith of the U.S. government, right? That's how we back a lot of stuff. So, yeah, it does seem like it'd be a big deal. And it is just such an opportunity for politicians to play this and leverage it and try to extract things from each other, while the people that get hurt, of course, just have to watch until they're done with their little fight.
0: Lynn Alden has a lovely article about this. I recommend reading the whole thing. It's very well-reasoned and educational. You can actually see... Financial markets pricing in the risk of US government default. Because right now, one month treasury bills, so lending money to the US government for one month, and we know that this default will not happen in one month. The debt ceiling limit is going to hit at the end of spring, early summer. So one month treasury bills will not be affected. You can buy these for 3.54%. But three months treasury bills. So bills that could be affected by this debt limit, they're trading at 5.2%. They're trading 1 point something, nearly 2% higher, which is huge in terms of bond yields because the market is anticipating the U.S. government not finding a political solution to this and actually delaying payment on some of these bills. And this gap is, yeah, this gap is really unusual, right? Like, that's a big deal to have this gap there. Not paying on some bills for a few weeks as they have this political fight in Congress is not the end of the world. It will reduce trust in US Treasury debt, it will accelerate de dollarization, but it isn't the end of the world. The end of the world scenario is a full default where it's clear that the US government will never politically get it together to raise the debt ceiling. And so, U.S. government debt is just worthless now. That's not going to happen. So I was being a little bit hyperbolic before. But there may be a delay in this resolution. And so some treasury bills may be paid late. But what's really interesting about this that Lynn gets into in this article is that as the debt ceiling has loomed, the Federal Reserve has been sucking liquidity out of the economy by not adding significantly to their financial asset portfolio and also by raising interest rates. But because the US Treasury has been unable to issue new debt, they're actually injecting liquidity into the economy by spending down the government bank account significantly. It was at $500 billion. It's now at, I think, $40 billion. It's shot down precipitously. That actually creates some liquidity in financial markets. And that could be part of the reason why stock markets haven't really sold off to such a huge extent and are still relatively highly valued. I mean, the the price-to-earnings ratio of many stocks is still relatively high historically because a weird dynamic of this treasury unable to issue new debt, so having to spend their bank account down, is they're actually supporting the price of financial assets in a certain sense. Once this debt ceiling is resolved the treasury will begin to refill their bank account and so depending on how fast they do this they could potentially create a massive liquidity crunch once the debt ceiling is resolved now other things could happen the federal reserve could restart quantitative easing completely blow up their credibility and attempt to intervene in treasury markets after the debt ceiling is resolved to uh, soak up some of this issuance and and kind of balance out the potential financial turmoil afterwards. But the TLDR is that even when the debt ceiling issue is resolved, the mechanics of the Treasury spending down massive amounts of money to keep the government going and then suddenly issuing huge amounts of debt, almost, you know, potentially overwhelming the market for U.S. government debt in a massive issuance and then sucking dollars out of the financial system into Treasury bank accounts could be very tumultuous. And so my thousand-foot view is it looks like we're in a recession. There have been reports about lots of job layoffs. There is a banking crisis that has shut down three regional banks, and at least one more, First Republic, should probably be nationalized too. And we know that a massive financial shock is coming down the pipeline in a few months due to this debt ceiling issue with the Treasury. So this is not a good financial forecast. I think that we need to be ready for, you know, potentially very surprising and upsetting and scary financial news in the future and not be too bullish and excited about taking risk in equities or whatnot, or maybe even crypto. Who knows? That could also be negatively impacted.
1: Right. I mean, if they they were to suck up a bunch of dollars, wouldn't that cause the Dixie to go up? Usually when the price goes up, Bitcoin goes down. It's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about the repercussions of when they come back and issue a bunch of more debt and basically flood the market with government debt. That's just creating a whole bunch of inventory that's going to drive the price down. But it also suck up dollars, which it seems like having the price of U.S. government debt go down while sucking up a bunch of dollars. That's a weird volatility right there.
0: Honestly, read the article. It's hard to do it justice. I think that Lynn is giving away at least a master's degree in finance in her writing. So check it out if you have an interest in that sort of thing
1: tell you what, if some presidential candidate started running and announced that they were going to bring Lenin for a treasury secretary or something, or t- t- chairman of the Fed or something, yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> I'll vote for you, please. I mean, she's just making the map of what's going to happen here.
0: She'd have my vote too.
1: This episode of Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by one of my shows over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Go check out Office Hours 28, and I'll give you some ideas I have around why you'll see more and more podcasts transitioning to value for value, Potentially boosts and maybe some of the headwinds that traditional sponsored podcasts are featuring. I think this is good for anybody that listens to podcasts and kind of wants an idea of where the industry is heading and how that might affect their favorite shows, regardless of who makes them. So go check it out at jupiterbroadcasting.com or you can go directly to officehours.hair.
0: One thing that differentiates Bitcoin from other cryptocurrency projects is that you can still run a Bitcoin node. On a very small, very cheap computer. Even though Raspberry Pis have gone up in price a lot, there was a time in the recent past where you could get a thirty-five-dollar Raspberry Pi, and you could plug in a, let's say, eighty to one hundred and forty-dollar hard drive to that Raspberry Pi, and you could sync a Bitcoin node in a reasonable amount of time, depending on the type of node and the way you configure the sync options. It could be somewhere between four days and two weeks, also depending on your internet connection. Now, what if you could sync a Bitcoin node in four minutes on a mobile phone? Would that what? be cool?
1: What? 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 No,
0: that can't be done, Dad. That's not possible. Why is that not possible?
1: Well, you got to download the blockchain first, and that's going to be, you know, gigs and gigs, and then you got to read through all that and process it. You know, and then uh, once you've done that, you got to stay online. you got to receive the new updates. So it's a complicated, slow process, and it can't be done on a mobile device, and it just can't be done in seconds.
0: There's no way. So you talked about how now we have high-speed internet much more available. We're surrounded by LTE, 5G, whatever. So we have more bandwidth available. And that's really interesting, because what this project, Utrixo, does is it uses Stark Proofs, this type of zero-knowledge, I think Stark Proofs, uh, essentially a type of zero-knowledge cryptography that you hear a lot about in Zcash, I think also in Monero. They talk about this in Ethereum, ZK Rollups. And what this cryptography allows you to do is to essentially create a proof of the bitcoin utxo set so to step back a little there are actually at least two types of bitcoin nodes there is a full node and there's a pruned node And the difference between them is that a full Bitcoin node downloads the entire history of the blockchain from the first block to the current block, which is, I think, nearly 700,000 blocks at this point. And And here's what's interesting, though. It doesn't actually verify the signatures. It doesn't verify every transaction in each block. It assumes that if blocks are pretty old, that's already been verified because it's just, you know, it takes a lot of effort to verify blocks from the beginning to the end. I've done the full verification on multiple nodes because I'm a nerd and there's something wrong with me, maybe, (laughs) but most full nodes don't even do that. They actually assume that, you know, 300 or a hundred thousand blocks back, if you start verifying signatures, then that's safe enough. And I I think they're right. But what a prune node does is basically connects to the Bitcoin network, says, hey, what are the current transactions? What's the UTXO set? And it takes the last 40 blocks downloads and verifies them, and then builds the UTXO set. And the UTXO set in the Bitcoin software is called the chain state. And this is a really important thing because if you read through every Bitcoin block and you validate every transaction, transactions create and destroy UTXOs, unspent transaction outputs. These are like the little coins, the little pieces of Bitcoin. And what's different about Bitcoin versus a physical currency made of coins is that in Bitcoin, you have to know all of the coins in existence. You have to know all of the pieces of Bitcoin, all of the UTXOs. And this knowledge, which lives inside nodes, is called the UTXO set or the chain state. And that's why, Bitcoin is sometimes described as a state machine. It creates a global state. Reading all the blocks, doing all the math, verifying all the cryptography creates a global state. And that's the state of money. It's the state of Bitcoin.
1: And so we arrive at the, the crux of the issue. Oh, this is my favorite word today, which is the UTXO and keeping track of all of that. Right. And um, something that is inherently difficult on a resource-limited device or a limited connectivity device, maybe a point-of-sales device even that doesn't have a particularly powerful CPU in it?
0: The current Bitcoin chain state at 4 gigabytes is getting difficult. It is difficult for Raspberry Pis, which might have 4 gigabytes of memory or 8 gigabytes of memory.
1: Well, and think of all those little point of sale terminals that you've used over the years buying stuff. Like, those things are tiny little machines, and you're not going to get everybody to replace a fleet of systems like that.
0: Right. They might have a few megabytes. So this means that these smaller devices, they either have to rely on a on a bigger computer in the background, which is more overhead, more complicated, more risk. In an extreme case, this results in a blockchain where all of the nodes live in data centers in the cloud, which is very insecure. So what Utrexo does is it's called a hash-based dynamic accumulator. It allows the unspent outputs of Bitcoin to be represented in under a kilobyte, theoretically small enough to be written on a piece of paper. And what you do is you essentially create a proof, which is a so I think the structure is a series of trees, like a series of Merkle trees, and all of the transactions in the U- or the the UTXOs and the UTXO set live inside this data structure and they can be updated from blocks. With 3 XO proofs in real time, but you end up with having, if you're running a pruned 3 XO node, you've got forty blocks of pruned blockchain, because you're validating, you know, the blockchain, even though you don't have the whole history. Then you've got a kilobyte of chain state proofs. So you can actually have a full Bitcoin node using only forty megabytes of storage. But what is the downside? What is the cost of this engineering solution?
1: Just before you go there, I mean that is really remarkable because you're taking a data set that's in the multiple gigs, and you're bringing it down to kilobytes and you're making it referenceable with super low CPU overhead using standard technology. That's
0: big. That's a big deal. It actually requires a bit of CPU. I mean
1: yes, I'm talking about the comparison though of the Merkle tree. Yeah, that you know that's pretty reasonable. There is like more data though isn't there, isn't there
0: going to be more traffic and more processing? You got it. It might increase the bandwidth usage by four times because in addition to Bitcoin blocks, you also need utxo proofs and so you need to send more data to this node. Also, you end you end up with a new type of node, a new type of pruned node. So it has to connect back to legacy nodes using a bridge node. So depending on the number of bridge nodes and the structure of this network, but you know, potentially it might be vulnerable to disruption. But what's cool about it is you can't lie using the these utrixo proofs. You can't send false transactions. All you can do is stop the next transaction. You can kind of disrupt the network work, but you can't steal from it. So it has some inbuilt security in that it'll either work or it won't work, but you won't lose money if you are using it.
1: Okay. So more data. Yes, that is a problem because a lot of these points, like this is my thinking is the point of sales systems and, and mobile devices. I would imagine the current credit card transaction data is it's on demand. It's probably a low amount of data. It's probably mostly just some kind of encrypted text. So you're going to you're going to have an order of magnitude more data requirements on like the Wi-Fi networks that use these things or the LTE networks. And, yeah, that that matters. It matters. But it seems like a solvable problem that we're already trending in the right direction. So it doesn't seem like a like a, uh, you know, it kills it. It doesn't seem like it's a a deal breaker. It seems solvable.
0: From what I've heard, you can keep a legacy Bitcoin full node or prune node up to date with one megabit per second connection. So this would require a four megabit per second connection. My connection at home is 80 megabit per second. So with my home internet, which I don't think is particularly fast, this is completely fine.
1: Yeah, and that's getting more and more common too, especially at uh, you know a sales place, a point of sales. I like the idea.
0: So this is really cool. We could see Bitcoin nodes on smaller devices in mobile phones. And what's really neat about this is if you're creating a application that uses Bitcoin, you can just build in the u node in the backend and then your application is sort of nicely self-contained. It, it does its own validation. It's not vulnerable to being tricked by the provider of Bitcoin network information. It's a nice piece of technology and it's cool that there's development happening there.
1: I like it. And uh, I, like, I don't think it's going to be for everything, but I think it's going to be a great option and awesome for mobile app development. Remember, you can get in touch with the pod, bitcoin dad pod at protonmail.com or bitcoin dad pod on Twitter. Of course, you can find us throughout the week in our Matrix channel. Grab an app like Element or Fluffy and then go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix and then look around for the Bitcoin. We have two rooms, actually. We have the discussion room and we have the beginner questions room.
0: You pick. And we got some boosts this week. Torched ESC sent in a Grandpa McDuck boost of 22.
1: Remembered. Yes. The McDucks. And this is is listener Jeff who uh, you've met.
0: Oh, right. Jeff is awesome. He says, I had a nice BTC conversation with my old fogey uncle recently, and he (laughs) seems to think BTC must be able to do everything a dollar can do for it to be relevant. I gave examples on how it can be used along with a simple elevator pitch, which he did take into consideration. But he kept asking things like, can we use it to pay our bills or get paid by our employer in BTC? I thought, well, obviously, if we cash out, we can. But that defeats the purpose if no one will pay it and we can't live off of it. I am curious on your thoughts about using BTC for normal living expenses. I remember hearing about local farmers accepting BTC, but what about water, food, electricity? Maybe a SATS-only challenge for a month or a week in September? Satoshi September challenge? Keep up the awesome show, still trying to spread the word. (laughs) Thanks so much, Jeff. That's really cool.
1: I do like the alliteration there, Jeff, of the uh, Satoshi September challenge. You know, this is an interesting conversation because nobody ever says, Well, what good is this real estate? Why'd you buy all this land? You you can't you can't pay your bills with it. You can't can't buy food with that land over there. Why'd you go buy those stocks? Why why do you own that gold? You can't, you can't go to the grocery store with gold. What are you what are you buying stock and apple for? You can't get anything for that. When you go and say, Yeah, I bought, you know, 10 grand worth of uh land or 10 grand worth of stock or something, like people don't don't raise those questions. I think it's an interesting conversation because because it's possible to replace day-to-day transactions with Bitcoin. I don't know if we know if we'll ever actually get there or not, or if that would actually be the good thing. You know, I, I think about it, like if I was going to go to the, you know, the Popeye's chicken chicken shack and get some chicken fingers, do I want to spend sats on that? I think I'd rather go hungry, to tell you the truth, than spend sats on chicken fingers. Would I spend sats on real estate or something that is another type of investment? Yeah, I could see that. But something that is literally just going to go in one end and go out the other? I have a hard time saying that sats should be spent on that. I think they're too precious and too important. But then again, I'm also the guy that walks around with a lightning wall that's charged up with a couple hundred dollars worth of sats. And then I have my cold offline savings, which is my Bitcoin. So I do actually at the same time have some spending sats and toss them around.
0: I think that your fogey uncle's questions about why can't you do everything with Bitcoin are being prompted by the fact that Bitcoin is compared to the dollar. And so the dollar is the most spendable thing in the universe. So it sort of makes sense to ask, well, can you spend Bitcoin the exact same way? I think where the logical mistake happens is if you say, listen, you can't spend Bitcoin as easily as dollars yet, but you can spend it sort of. Then maybe your uncle says, well, in that case, it looks worthless to me because it can't do everything a dollar can do. So why do I need it when I have a dollar? But when you look at Bitcoin compared to real estate, land, gold, stocks,
1: any other currency where like, you know, it's the fact that you can convert Bitcoin into USD either through various services or by selling it directly is a testimony to how powerful this digital currency is that it can be converted to a completely different fiat structure. So simply like the fact that it can kind of be done is amazing because it is a completely separate foreign beast from the existing system. But we just because we're inside that system, we don't think of it that way.
0: So it has this saving technology, saving ability, but it also has this spending ability. So it's very different than dollars because dollars these days have zero saving ability. If you don't put your dollars into a money market account to get 5% interest rates, they're literally being devalued at 5%. You know, that's an option today. You could close your bank account, just use a broker account so you can keep your cash balances in a 5% money market, high yield account. And then I think they even will give you a debit card so you could maybe even make payments from that. Essentially, I think that Bitcoin walks into a lot of criticism. Because it starts as money. It doesn't say, hey, this is a financial asset that can also be spent. It says, this is a money that also has savings technology. And so it has to justify itself as a money before people start to think about the savings aspect.
1: As far as uh, day-to-day spending, one thing that is kind of a neat tech demo, Jeff, and uh, we used it for the uh, SAT stakes down there in Pasadena, is there's others, but we used Bit Refill. What I appreciated about is you don't really need to have much of an account. You can just send sats over Lightning or on-chain, and then in exchange, they give you a gift card. And in our case, we bought an uh, instant cart gift card, and then we just ordered groceries. And we bought the stakes using the instant cart, but the gift card was purchased using sats that were sent from our Lightning note. They have, they have basically everybody that has gift cards. They have, it's a gift card market, and you, f- you buy them with sats, or one of the many ways. And so there are ways to do it today but again I, I think you could argue would you would you set would you spend a few feet of real estate on a piece of property so you could eat today maybe you would in some cases maybe sometimes you'd rather just not eat today right like that's how i view it. it's like i view my sats that I save with at least, as real estate on the blockchain. And the more sats I accumulate, the more real estate I have. And when I sell sats, it's like selling off a few feet of land. Sometimes it's worth it. Sometimes it's not.
0: This is a huge digression, but I think this is also a criticism of Bitcoin where people say, well, look, people don't spend Bitcoin. Therefore, it's not a real money. And I actually disagree completely because what you're saying is that you have this money that you really like. It's really good. It's really valuable to you. This is actually a situation we call Gresham's Law in economics. And Gresham was, a, I believe, an English economist. And he observed that when England had bad currency, people saved in the good foreign currency. They saved in sort of like gold French francs and, and these sort of gold coins that came in from other places. Right. But they spent this crappy, debased English currency. That's, that's my approach. <laughs> yeah. He said bad money drives out good. People save the good money, they spend the bad money. And so people tend to save satoshis, they save Bitcoin, and they spend dollars. So that's consistent to how different monetary standards with various qualities have interacted in the past.
1: Yeah, and especially as uh, you know, society is recognizing Bitcoin. As an asset, that HODL mentality is part of the monetization phase. We see it over and over. Um, and, you know, I, I would I would just I would just end on like this microphone I'm talking into was bought with Bitcoin. The mixer that this microphone goes into the, even the microphone arm was bought with Bitcoin. So there are times where I felt over the years it's worth spending it. It's just you know a calculated decision. Tepulus comes in with 1,499 sats. Could the BRICS, Argentina and others be proactive signs of some U.S. default? Do you know a good pod to keep up with the shifting world finance, primarily not U.S. focused? That's a hard question right now.
0: And it's giving away the milk for free, talking about other podcasts. But I'm happy to do it because, <laughs> I, you know, I'm about giving away the milk. So I don't think that this discussion about the brics in argentina and you know using other currencies is a sign of us default it's a sign of a long term trend us default is represented in something called cds credit default swap it's default insurance on debt. And so when the credit default swap price on U.S. Treasury debt goes parabolic, that means a U.S. default is likely coming. So that's the thing to watch. For other podcasts that have a sort of international flair economically, I honestly don't have a good international economics podcast. There is one daily podcast that if you really want something very technical, it's very trader focused, but it is international. It's called the Saxo Bank podcast. They do a daily daily sort of trading economics podcast. I can't vouch for, like, are they pumping their bags? Yes, I think so. Will it give you useful general um, economic information? Probably not. It's more trader-focused. Other than that, I honestly would love to hear some recommendations because I'd love to hear what, you know, Nigerian people are talking about economically. Like, that would be very interesting to me, for for instance. So, please send in your... Suggestions. Smart Growth, our favorite Bitcoin enabled farmer, boosts in 5,000 sats. Speaking of high priced learning, I misplaced my Ledger seed phrase and it wouldn't sync with my PC or phone. Oh no. Ledger support is meh and slow. Fortunately, after a super stressed night and poor sleep, I thought enough to revert my PC version of Ledger Live, which allowed me to sync and get my life savings off to a software wallet until I could get a new ledger and seed phrase set up. Lesson, keep multiple seed phrase copies in various secure locations. Wow, that's a stressful experience.
1: Really, no kidding. And I'm constantly thinking about where I hide the seed phrase, always on my mind, because you don't want it to be somewhere that's gonna be discoverable, but you don't want it to be a single point of failure and you don't wanna lose it. Very tricky. And you don't wanna forget it. It's a challenge. You want to have a couple and you want them to be fairly indestructible. I also have a uh, a new rule, I, th- I think, that I'm going to implement with wallets, which is going to eliminate some of them that I think are pretty nice, at least user-friendly. And that is if it requires a login that is tied to a service in any way or it needs an API. Like, I really think there's some really nice wallets out there that are going to bring safe, multi-sig self-custody to the normies. But my issue with them is they require a login. And if I ever forgot or lost that username or password or their login services weren't available, Maybe 10 years down the road or more, that'd be a rough one. So that's my new policy for anything that I use to store my stuff long term. My spend in sats, you know, like with and stuff, I'm, I'm pretty low-key on that one. XO resume comes in with 5,000 sats, and he just loved the secured by a wall of energy protected by cyber hornets moment in the show last week,
0: I think. Marcel boosted in a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. What if the top mining pools agreed to only build on their own in each other's blocks? Even if it's not one entity doing a 51% attack, each pool would find more blocks than before reminds me of something you talked about in the summer about miners trying to steal the previous block rather than working on the next block.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we're going to get the scheme going. This is something that the dad and I have been uh, planning, and uh, this is going to be our approach. We're going to basically make friendly with a couple of large mining operators and then uh, orchestrate the whole thing, take our cut, and it's our exit strategy for the pod.
0: Uh, Well, what about plausible deniability? We've just revealed our plan. How do we write this off? I mean,
1: I think we'll be good. Yeah, you just cut that out. We'll be good. Oh, we
0: just cut this? Okay. Yeah, you just cut it. So it seems that doing a 51% attack is pretty hard. If you had a group of mining pools agree to an attack like this. Mining pools do not control the hash that is part of the pool. The mining pool operator is a separate business that coordinates the incoming hash from miners. The mining pool does not necessarily own all the miners. and all of the largest mining pools, they may own some miners, but they don't own all the participants in the pool. So what that means is if they start to do things that are sort of out of acceptable limits, with regards to Bitcoin culture or protecting the network, miners have the option to leave that pool and join another pool. And it's incredibly cheap to spin up a mining pool. You can just, all you need is a couple cloud servers and some technical expertise. There's no fixed capital requirement or permission required. So, running a mining pool and being a Bitcoin miner is, in general, a very tough industry. And in tough, low margin, competitive industries, coordination like this is very costly. And it can be disrupted by financial shocks, like say, miners leaving your pool. I think that some of the best evidence for this not being a feasible attack is that it hasn't happened and it doesn't seem like there's a clear, obvious financial benefit to doing it. That would just be my take. I'm not a mining hash rate specialist, so that's probably a pretty vague okay. answer. Sorry. It's not
1: our, okay. All right. All right. I'll just write that, and scratch that one. Just... It's an interesting thought though. Mere Mortals podcast comes in once again with a row of ducks, and they write the problem with boosts is that sometimes you guys touch upon like five different things, and I want to comment on them all. Well, that boost button keeps on working, Mere Mortals. Uh, they write, "I limit myself though to this one. Uh, earning a living from value for value is hard." I know Adam and John do it fantastically, but it's a small sample size. I'm willing to devote several years to trying to make it happen, but I'm relying at the moment on more of a mixture of faith, intuition, and trend predicting than hard data and examples. Here's some stats for your value for value journey. Yeah, I hear you on that one. Um, it is, you know, Adam on the podcasting 2.0 pod, he does a great job of spreading the message, but the one thing they don't touch on very often is that it kind of depends on a pretty big audience to get the accumulative effect you need. To make it a living. But much like yourself, I watch the trend still and I find that to be a fascinating predictor because this week and like it happened a few weeks ago, the dad pod has received more boosts than Linux Unplugged. Now, I don't actually think the totals have worked. I think Linux Unplugged may still have a larger total in SATs. the last episode, but more people boosted this pod, and this happened a few weeks ago, than a podcast with many, many, many tens of thousands of downloads. Um, So I think in part, it also just is uh, the pitch to the audience is definitely size. And exposure, but then it's also the, if the audience is on board and if they get it. And I think, you know, um, there's probably people that just more natively understand it in this audience. And so it doesn't always necessarily mean that a larger podcast is going to perform better. Like if you look, uh, on the fountain top charts for this week, I noticed that Cole's America plus made it to the top charts. I think it's his first time ever. I, I don't, I don't imagine he has maybe even a thousand listeners, maybe somewhere around there. I'm not sure. So it can happen from time to time. And, you know, uh, It's happened here on this show. Occasionally, a really generous booster comes along, sends in a big old boost, and uh, we go to the top of the charts. The pod does a little bit better that week, sometimes a lot better that week, and it's a a pretty awesome cycle. But getting everyone on board, getting them transitioned to the tooling that makes it really easy, it's going to be a very long process. One that I worry will take longer than the podcast market has time for, but all we can do is wait and see. Thank you, everybody, who did boost in. Everybody sent in either some streaming sats or uh, a boost with no message or under the $1,000 sat cutoff. We appreciate all of them. We read all of them. I got a dashboard up all the time. I see those coming in. Now, if you'd like to send a boost into the show, support the production, and get a message in that we can respond to, well, you got a couple options for that boost. You can go get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com and join the revolution, the new podcasting two to no wave. And that boost button's just right there in the app. It's so nice. And with Fountain, you can stack sats while listening. That's a pretty nice feature. And then you just lighten it out of there or you boost it in whatever you like. They have certain days where they boost a little extra on the uh, sat streaming or you can listen to ads and stack some sats a little quicker. Fountain.fm for that. You just send a boost right there. Or if you want to keep your dang podcast app. I get it. I get it. Well, then just get Albi. Get Top it off either right in the app or maybe from like some other app over Lightning or on-chain. And then you go to the podcast index, look up the Bitcoin Dad pod, right there on the podcast index page, right there in the webpage, right there, no podcast app required. You can boost in and get your message on the the show and support this year production.
0: And we also get a reoccurring boost from a listener who's running... I think, Oak Home, Home Oak, a lightning extension. And you can send reoccurring boosts using our Ellen URL addresses, which are also in the thank you boosters segment. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, April 28th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'll try to get this podcast out quickly. Sorry about (laughs) last week. And I'm here, as always, remotely with
1: me, Chris. (laughs) Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.